We are in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, what we've basically been learning so far is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for what it looks like when a community of people would radically reorient their lives around him and his kingdom. It's Jesus' vision for a new humanity that's living not with the flow of culture or the worldly powers that tend to shape our lives, but have been uh, adopted into a new family and given a new orientation and a new identity as the people of God. That we understand as this sermon begins with him pronouncing the blessing or the presence of God upon his disciples. That that's the first thing that's true about us. That we are the blessed people of God. God is with us. He is our God and we are his people. Then in the sermon he moves on to these two metaphors of salt of the earth and light of the world. Saying this new kingdom community he's forming has a mission in the world. That we are invited to join God on his mission of reconciling all things back to himself through Christ. And so we serve as those that preserve and give flavor and make thirsty the world, as well as those that get to shine the light of Jesus with our lives. Then we moved on to the question of authority. Where do we get our paradigm or our vision for how to live? And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. And so we've come to believe that if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to follow him in his view and his reverence and his commitment to the scriptures as well. That the word of God, the Bible as we know it, is an authoritative voice in shaping not just what we believe, but how we live out through this mission and this faith together. And then we moved into several case studies where Jesus says, here's how this, the scripture is interpreted through him, through Jesus, and how he's not just looking for a bunch of people that can check boxes and keep rules and be good Christians, but he's actually saying, I want to give you a new heart I don't want you just to do the right things. I want you to do the right things for the right reasons. And he warns us, as we talked about last week, against becoming like the hypocrites. So he acknowledges that there have always been and will always be hypocrites in the presence of the church. And he says, yeah, they're going to be there, and I'm not a fan of that. But what is our response to the presence of hypocrisy? It's not to use that reality as an excuse to distance ourselves from Jesus or from the church, but simply, as he would say, is don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. But instead, when you pray, when you give to the poor, when you practice fasting and other spiritual disciplines, he says do it for the reward that is your father. Do it for the pleasure of God. Do it as a commitment to loving him. And that's where we left off last week. So here we pick up in verse 19 of chapter 6. And the conversation today comes to the topic of money. Right? So what Jesus is going to talk about this morning uh, has to do with how do we, as his kingdom people, as his followers and disciples, how does his vision for our lives shape the way we think about, view, and use our possessions and our money? Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, let's talk about how do we view our money or our lack thereof. 
um, in verse 22, he uses this really interesting metaphor that's a little bit confusing at first, but it has to do with how we see things. So he says, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, a little bit of a confusing metaphor. So I think what he's trying to say here is this. When he talks about eyes being full of darkness, I think that's basically a first century way of describing the state of blindness. Okay, And so what he's saying is that if you are in a room full of light, but your eyes are dark, meaning you can't see or you're blind, then the light outside of you isn't going to help you see. The only part of your body that can take in or receive light is, is the eyes, right? And so if your eyes are darkened, if you are blind or unable to see, then he's saying it doesn't matter how much light is in the room or around you, you're still living in the dark, okay? So a confusing metaphor becomes pretty simple. Now, what Jesus is talking about here are what we might call materialism and greed, the excessive love of and need for wealth that actually comes at the expense of our souls. The excessive love and need for wealth that comes at the expense of our souls. And so Jesus is saying here, that the way we view and think about money, the way we see money, possessions, and wealth, has everything to do with the way we see everything else. So put simply, the way that you see money and possessions affects the way you see everything else. This is what he's talking about with the eyes and the darkness and the light. The way you think about money, the way you see it, is going to shape your entire life, whether you are aware of it or not. Okay, So that's the basic idea he's introducing, or the argument that he's beginning to make. Jesus talks about money all the time. He regularly is coming back to this idea that his disciples, his followers, are to be people who see money radically different than the way that those in the world do. And so another example would be in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, where he says this. Watch, he said to them, watch out, warning language, be careful, flashing yellow lights, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Okay, so this is a very classic Jesus kind of language where he's giving this urgent warning to his hearers and saying, I can't overstate this. I need you to be careful. Watch out. Protect yourselves. Be careful. And specifically, he speaks that we would need to be on guard against greed, all kinds of greed. So not just like the stereotypical Scrooge McDuck kind of greed that child, children of the 80s think of, but all, there's other kinds of greed, I guess. Now here's what's interesting. There's other things that Jesus would command us against, things that we would avoid or abstain from or watch out for um, to a certain degree, but this kind of urgent and energetic language is really pronounced in places like Luke 12 here. Because I don't think we have a place where Jesus says, watch out for adultery. Watch out that you might fall into all kinds of adultery. Why doesn't he say that? Why does he say, watch out, 
be on your guard against greed. My guess is because greed is one of those sins that you can fall into without actually knowing you've fallen into it. Greed is something that can show up and be, pro- and be strong in your life without you being aware of it. And it's a unique sin that way, isn't it? Which is why he doesn't say watch out against adultery because you don't ever commit adultery without knowing it, right? You're never like, oh, you're not my wife. Like that's... <laughs> That's not something that can happen, but apparently you can fall into greed and be a greedy person and actually not be aware. And so here in the sermon, as well as Luke 12 and dozens of other places in Jesus' teachings, Jesus says, pay special attention to the way you see your money and think about possessions and wealth and stuff like that, because the truth is, Almost everyone who's greedy doesn't know it. Greedy people never think they're greedy. So as a pastor for 20 years now, I've spent lots of time with people pursuing uh, growth in their faith and relationship with God, and oftentimes that comes with people confessing their sins with me or sharing their struggles of the places where they're trying to, to live life closely with God. And I've had people confess almost every sin in the book to me at some point in my office. Very rarely does anyone come in and say, I need help overcoming my greed and materialism. And that's precisely why Jesus says, watch out, be careful. Because this thing could have you and you don't even know it. Okay? And so the first thing I want to say is that if any of us are hearing this teaching from Jesus this morning and assuming he's talking about someone else, then be very, very careful. If you think this doesn't apply to you, but it only applies to other people, and you're already starting to go, man, I really wish so-and-so was here, that sort of thing, watch out. You're in a bad place. If you think Jesus isn't talking to you, that's, a, that's something you need to pay attention to. Okay, And so why is it? Why is it that greed is so hard for us to see in ourselves compared to other sins? Well, one answer would be because we all know somebody that's got more than we do, right? We all know somebody that's richer or wealthier or living more luxuriously than we do. So we think, well, there's no way I'm greedy because I don't have everything that they have, right? And so we compare ourselves to others and we all conclude that I must not be greedy. 97% of Americans consider themselves middle class. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Because we all know someone who has more, so we must not be greedy. So even if I'm a multimillionaire or whatever it is, I consider myself somewhere right in the middle. <laughs> By the way, um, there are some of us who don't like money, right? We're afraid of money for some reason. We don't trust ourselves with money, or it kind of, you know, it's the man or something like that. Um, there's other, others of us that try as hard as we may, and we're just not going to ever make much money. We don't have much money. We live very simply. We're, we're not anybody that people would look to and say, man, they're really living large, must be doing well for themselves. Um, you, those who are afraid of money or don't have any money, you're not off the hook from Jesus' teaching either. 
Because just because you don't have a lot doesn't mean that money doesn't have power over you, right? In fact, it's often people who have very little that spend all their time thinking about how little they have and how much better their life would be if they had more and how all their problems would be solved if they just could have more or make more or get more or something like that. They think about how much better life would be. And so just because you don't have any money doesn't mean money doesn't have control over your life. So the brilliance of Jesus is that he's an equally, he's an equal, equal offending communicator, isn't he? He doesn't let any of us off the hook. The rich, the poor, the indifferent, somewhere in the middle, he goes, this thing, money, has an incredible power over people, and I want you to be careful. And so my assumption for this morning is that I'm a greedy person, and so are you, okay? Let's start with that. We're just a room full of greedy people that are materialistic, and we think about money, and it controls our lives. So we're not going to do like an altar call about that. I'm just going to assume you're all guilty and sinners like I am. So what, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Um, first thing is, to assume that this is true about ourselves means there's something in us that we can't see, and so we need other people to help us see it. And so I would encourage you to think about how am I ensuring that greed and materialism isn't overpowering my life and would I be willing to invite my community of brothers and sisters in Christ into that space in my life. So for example, I know a lot of men who have uh, accountability partners when it comes to the area of sexual sin. Right? So whether we're talking about pornography or actually being tempted in a relationship or something like that, um, there's a lot of men that know that they are prone to those kinds of sins and therefore have taken a step of confessing those sins and inviting other men in their lives who they trust to try to hold them accountable and pray for them and talk through those places. And so when I was a youth and college pastor, there was uh, a role that I frequently f played for the guys in my ministry of an FPO, a fornication prevention officer. And so when you're on a date with your girlfriend or wh whatever it is, you give me a call. If you're worried you're going to cross a line or, you know, do something like that, I want to be your first call and I'll walk you through that or something like that. Um, I don't know anybody that has a greed prevention officer in their life. I don't know anybody that say, hey, could you hold me accountable? Could you help me think about how I'm using and viewing my money and my stuff and my possessions? Because I don't want to fall into greed. Um, so I think that would be interesting if we each had maybe just one or two people who we really know and love and trust and know that, that uh, they love us as well. And we, had, we gave them full access and said, hey, here's how much I make. Here's how much I spend on this. Here's, uh, here's what, I, what I'm investing in. Here's what I'm saving. I just want somebody else to know because apparently in Jesus' eyes, I'm on thin ice simply by the fact that I'm a human. Okay? And so first we have this warning from Jesus that we need to be careful how we view, view our money because if we are blind in that area, our whole life will be affected. Now, why? We haven't talked about why is that. It's just little green pieces of paper, right? How could something like that actually have such incredible power over us? Well, in verse 21, he, he tells us why. 
He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, I'd summarize it like this, that your money will flow the most effortlessly to whatever you really treasure in your heart. Next slide. The one after that one. The one before that one. Oh, man. I'm going to just read it for you again. Uh, There it is. Our money will flow the most effortlessly to whatever we really treasure in our heart. Okay? And so here's the idea. How do you know what the treasure of your heart is? How do you know what is the thing that you really value and care about the most? Well, he says, well, watch where your money goes. And there are things that we have to spend money on, right, when it comes to bills and rent and things like that. But where does your treasure, where does your money most easily flow? Is it easier for you to spend money on new clothes or new tech or new gadgets or something like that than it is to give it to the work of God's kingdom? Not even talking about quantity or anything like that, but pay attention to your heart. Which What's the most natural, effortless flow of your money? And if it's towards your clothes, towards your appearance, towards status, towards toys, towards sports or equipment or whatever it is, then it seems to me that Jesus is saying that the place your money most most effortlessly flows is the thing that you value the most. It is the thing your heart has chosen to treasure and to love. And if it's easier for you to spend money on stuff for yourself than it is for the kingdom of God, then you value that stuff more than you value God's kingdom. Now, that sounds incredibly harsh, but that seems to be exactly what Jesus is saying. Not talking about how much you give or where you spend or something like that. Just saying, what's happening in your heart and where is it easiest for you to give? Or or to spend. Okay, so others, for us, it doesn't look like spending on ourselves and buying a bunch of gadgets and tools and cool stuff. Uh, For us, we want money in the account. We want it safe. We want it accumulating and earning for us. We're not out buying stuff and doing things. But for us, it's the idea that If I have my money tucked away, if it's safe, if it's doing well, then that's the easiest thing for me to do. That's where my money most effortlessly flows. And so the reality is on either side, what Jesus is saying here is that money can become our idol. It's incredibly easy for money to become an idol. An idol is something that we serve and look to for what only God can be for us. And so it's not necessarily that money itself becomes the idol, but money exposes what our idols are. So money serves the idol. Our money will always serve the object of our worship. And so if the object of our worship or our idol is our house, our cars, our clothes, our vacation, our whatever it is, then that exposes what our true functional God is. For others of us, if our money most effortlessly flows into savings and investments and uh, even what we, I mean, think about the language of what we call securities, right? 
then it says that the idol for me is safety. It's, I get this sense of security knowing that I have money um, tucked away. And so having a huge amount of money or investments or a nice house or nice stuff or whatever, I don't really think that's the problem. What Jesus is saying, pay attention to your heart. And are you looking to those things to be what only I can be for you? So, of course, again, Banksy captures this incredibly well for us. As a culture, uh, prophetically speaks in to this human tendency that we have to turn money into an idol or to use it as a means of serving our idols and finding security and significance in something only God can be. Okay. So, this is fun, right? You guys having fun? This is it's going well. <laughs> oh, man. How many of you drive a crappy car from the 80s? Or maybe 90s? Anybody? I got a 99 Ford. Um, there's nothing cool about a dumpy old car. But here's what's so funny. There was a day, 20 or 30 years ago, where somebody was so stoked to drive that thing off the lot. There was a day when it was a brand new, nice vehicle, and some dude had his windows down and Van Halen 2 on the cassette deck, and he was just so stoked to drive that thing off the lot and show, show off to all of his friends. And then it got old. And it broke down, and then newer, nicer cars came out. And all of a sudden, something that once was treasured and valuable is almost kind of laughable and embarrassing, right? Same thing happens, I mean, especially in technology, right? The latest, greatest new gadget, phone, TV, tablet. In two years, it's now silly. I've got, like, my original iPhone from 2007, and it's like, what is this, like a Game Boy? Or It's just not even cool at all. Jesus is tapping into how foolish is it for us to look to money and possessions and wealth and consumer products to be a source of significance and security because that stuff's going to be so irrelevant, so temporary, so silly in just a few years. So for us, it's not so much that moths and vermin are going to destroy, although uh, maybe that might be the case, depending on what your treasure is. But for us, it's just going to be worthless, right? Do you go in the thrift shops and see those huge console TVs that are like made out of wood and ornate carvings and then has like this little 16-inch screen? There was a day when somebody brought that home and thought it was amazing, right? And couldn't wait to watch you know, I Dream of Genie or whatever, on that little TV. And now we walk in and my kids are just like, what is that, right? And it's a joke. The same thing is going to happen with the brand new 70-inch flat screen you just bought. There will be a day in just a few years where your kids will think, I can't believe you hung that thing in your house. I don't know what the next best thing is. Like, that TV doesn't even pour beer or whatever the, the TVs of the future are going to do. It's insane. And so this is Jesus going, don't store up treasures on earth. 
He's not saying don't buy things or have things. He's saying don't look to those things, to material wealth or possessions, to fill the need in your soul that only I can fill. Don't look to that stuff to be your God, to be your significance, or to be your security. It's just a really basic logical teaching at that level, right? Because everything is going to get old and irrelevant and obsolete at some point. So what are we to do instead? How do we break the power that money has over us? Well, in verse 20, as we move kind of backwards through the passage, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay, so here's the remedy. Here's the remedy. Store up treasures in God. Now, in Matthew's gospel, The words kingdom of heaven or heaven are used in the same way that the other gospel writers use the phrase kingdom of God or the name of God. As he writes to a Jewish audience, just like our Jewish neighbors today continue to believe the name of God too holy and reverent to be written out. And so Matthew, to his Jewish audience, doesn't say kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven. But the danger for us as modern-day conservative evangelicals or whatever we are is that we come from a history and a lineage that equates the word heaven with a place in the clouds that we go after we die. And that's not at all what Jesus or his first hearers were picturing. When he talks about heaven or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the presence of God's rule and reign here and now. The kingdom of God, the place where God is king, where things are on earth as they are supposed to be, where things are being restored and reconciled to right relationships. And so I can make a stronger case for this biblically, but for now, I simply would invite you to to read this, not as heaven like one day when I get there, I'm going to get a sweet crown or treasures or something like that, but replace heaven with the name, the person of God. Store up for yourself treasures in your Father God. Not just the treasures that he would be a means to, but the reality that God himself is the treasure. He says, invest your life. Invest your treasure. Give yourself to the God who made you and knows you and loves you and is saving you. And so, um, how many of you know that there's an app that looks like this on your phone? You don't have to raise your hands. Sorry, I should have said that earlier. (laughs) Um, I was recently talking with a group of guys about stocks and investments and that sort of thing. And one of them was like, you know, there's an app on your phone that looks like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess there is. I I kind of forgot that. But you can go on that every day and check I'm guessing that the only people in this room that regularly use this app are who? Those that have money invested in in the market. Right? I could be wrong. Some of you might just like geeking out on economics or something. That's cool. But for the most part, the people who are going to check this are the people who are invested in it. Correct? I have no reason to check this because I don't even know what most of those things are, right? I couldn't tell you. But for some of you, you know exactly what they are and 
Either you're stoked or bummed right now, I guess. Um, now, that's great. For, for those of you that are stewarding wisely what God has entrusted in it to you and, and are doing that, then that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point is that we follow, we follow or we measure or we pay attention to those things that we are invested in. Okay? So if you're invested in the market, then you're going to care about this kind of stuff. If you're not invested, then you really aren't going to. And so I think that that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying your heart is going to follow your treasure. That you're going to care about and value the things that you've invested in. And so I think this is also what earlier in the, in the teaching, in the uh, sermon, where Jesus goes, um, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think when he says love your enemies, we're like, how the heck are we supposed to do that? Why would we do that? How would you even do that? And he goes, well, here's how you start. Pray for them. What's he doing? He's saying, make a spiritual investment. Prayer is an act of investing, an act of love, an expression of making a deposit. So he's like, if you can't pray for your enemies, for God's blessing upon those who persecute you, um, then you're not going to be able to do this. But if you begin investing your prayers in those that are hardest for you to love, then all of a sudden, just like those that invest money in the, in the stock market, are going to start to have a change of heart and a change of vision. He's pretty brilliant, if you think about it. And so, Jesus is commanding his disciples towards this life where we are investing our treasure into his kingdom. And so we know that he warns us to be cautious against all kinds of greed, but it doesn't stop there, that the vision Jesus always has for his people as a kingdom community isn't that we could just say, not greedy, check. But what he would really call us to is a life marked by gratitude and generosity. That's when we know that we truly haven't fallen in to this trap of greed. When we are able to live lives marked by gratitude and generosity. And so he's contrasting storing up treasures on earth that will pass away with storing up treasures in God that will never pass away. To invest all that we have, our money, our stuff, our time, our possessions, into the things of God. And we know there's lots of different ways that that can be done. Of course, through giving to the church that you belong to, by investing in this work, you're going to find yourself more deeply valuing and caring for what's happening here at Antioch and the work that we're doing in the city and around the world. But there's lots of different ways to invest in God's kingdom. Right? Jen and I have several nonprofits and missions organizations and missionaries that we support. And the fact that we give to those things on a regular basis makes us care about those people and care about that work in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And so that's the vision that we would move towards being a community prone to greed to being a community prone to generosity and to gratitude. 
which is what we all want to be, right? Like we would all love to be known as grateful, generous people rather than greedy people. Nobody aspires to greed. And so how can we make sure that we truly are on the path of being formed by the Spirit into people of Christ-like generosity, joy, and gratitude? Well, the idea is that we will always pay any price, any price for our treasure. We are always willing to pay any price for our treasure. Whatever it is that we value most, we will lay down our lives, and even if you think about the role of idolatry in the Old Testament and how awful the, the pagan nations would even be willing to sacrifice their children to their false gods, we continue to be prone to be willing to sacrifice our kids to our idols. Whatever it is that we are willing to pursue above all else includes laying down those things that should be dearest to our hearts. And so what we see in Jesus himself, there's a million different things that we could treasure. There's a million different gods we could worship. But the thing that makes Jesus totally different than all the other gods is that he's the one who has first treasured us. He's the one who was willing to give up everything in order to get you and me. So you can, you can treasure a life of success or health or appearance or wealth or whatever it is. And the reality is that all those things, they're good things, but they're bad gods. As much as you love them, they will never love you back. We'll close in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul gives this instruction to an early community of Christ followers, and he says, since you excel in everything, he's commending them for their, their faith, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So he's saying this should be a normative part of uh, the Christian life. Not only that in the way we speak and what we believe and our love and all that, that should be marks of Christ-likeness. He's like, you should also be excelling in the grace of giving. You should be getting better. You should be growing into more grateful and generous people. Okay, so that's normative. But why? He moves on. I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Paul's saying, okay, you could move into the space of generosity and giving from a place of duty and obligation and just say, well, I guess that's what a good Christian does, so I'm going to check it off the list. But he's saying, no, I actually want you to give from a place of sincerity and true love and gospel gratitude. And he says, it's not just that you need to buck up and be generous. He's like, I want you to look at Jesus. Listen to his teachings, yes, but look at Jesus. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So here's what we're saying. Whatever, to whatever degree, you are melted by the grace of Jesus. To that degree, you will become free from the power of greed and materialism. This is not something we can just talk ourselves into or behave ourselves into. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to set us free from bondage to money and stuff and to open our eyes to the beauty and the power of the person of Christ and to see just how wonderful he is, what he's done for us, and what it cost him. That he gave up everything even his very life, so that he could have us. So yeah, you're free to treasure whatever you want. But there's no better God than Jesus. And when we see him for who he is and what he's done, when we come to this table to remember his body broken, his blood poured out for us as the recipients of a great grace, and freed up to live lives of gratitude and generosity in the world. And so part of why we, every week, do an offering as part of our worship service is to practice this liberating new way of being people in the kingdom of God. And I would actually even say, by way of encouragement, for those of you that give to Antioch online or in recurring giving through your bank or whatever, that's great. Keep doing that. But I would actually say when the buckets come around, if you have a few dollars in your pocket, right, just a couple bucks, five, 20 bucks or whatever, to throw that in as an act of worship, I actually think we need that. We need all the help we can get to give us a posture of open-handedness towards our money and to see that everything God has given us is a gift from him. And we could invest it in iPhones or tacos or snowmobiles. But what about really investing in his kingdom? It's just one way to do it. And so I'd encourage you to do that on a regular basis. We already took the offering today, so you're screwed on that one. I apologize, but hold on to it for next week. Sound good? Why don't you stand? We'll pray. Lord Jesus, you are beautiful. There is no one like you. There is no God that can compare with the grace and the love, the mercy and the justice that we have in you. And we are prone uh, as people made of dust to value so many other things above you. And we want to repent of that this morning. Lord Jesus, we want you to be our treasure. We want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust you to meet all of our needs and take care of everything else. And so we know we can't make these changes in ourselves. We need a miracle. We need you by your spirit to change our hearts, to open our eyes, to convict us of sin and to lead us into true righteousness. God, we would love to be a community that's known for and marked by grateful joy 
and radical generosity. Every single one of us would love to be those kinds of people. And so we pray that whatever barriers, whatever walls, whatever idols, whatever things would keep us from becoming the people you've called us to be, that you would confront those and tear them down at any cost. We want you to have our souls, you and you alone. So we come to your table this morning. We come to your presence, to your joy, to look upon the glory of your son and to remember how much it cost you to make us your own. We love you, we trust you, and we worship you with our hearts and with our voices in this moment. In Jesus' name.